Well, good afternoon, everyone. I'm the first panel of the day that gets to say good afternoon. Um, my name is Victoria Cooper. I'm the research editor at the United States Study Centre, and I'm very pleased to be talking and taking over the US politics panel uh, for today's discussion. Um, at the top, Mike said that our objective was to try and explain US politics, and uh, I can give no guarantee <laughs> of that. Uh, but what I can say is that this is going to be a painfully quick 40 minutes before lunch, and as Bruce often says, um, before uh, we do events like this, let's have some fun. Uh, so that's the panel that I'm hoping to bring to you today. Uh, but before we begin, I'd like to uh, acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation on whose lands we're on tonight and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Um, I'm going to do a sweeping introduction of our panellists today. So to my left is Professor David Smith. He's jointly appointed between the United States Studies Centre and the School of the Social and Political Sciences at the University of Sydney. Dr Smith has a PhD in Political Science from the University of Michigan and a BA from the University of Sydney. His research examines political relations between states and minorities with a focus on religion in the United States. His book, Religious Persecution and Political Order in the United States was published by Cambridge University Press in 2015. Then the next one down is Olivia Nuzzi, who is the Washington correspondent for New York Magazine. She is known for in-depth, colourful interviews and profiles of politicians and the people who influence their decision-making. She has also written for GQ, Esquire, The Daily Beast, Glamour, The Washington Post and Politico. In 2020, she signed the Harper's Letter alongside Salman Rushdie, Margaret Atwood, Gloria Steinem and other prominent writers and intellectuals. In 2019, she won the National Magazine Award for journalists under 30, and in 2023, she was a finalist for the National Magazine Award for Feature Writing. Then we have Ryan Lizza. Ryan Lizza is the Chief Washington Correspondent for Politico and the co-author of Politico Playbook. In addition, Mr Lizza is the host and executive producer of the weekly Playbook Deep Dive podcast. Since arriving in Washington in 1998, Mr Lizza has written about national politics, policy and elections for Esquire, New York Magazine, GQ, The Washington Post, The New Yorker, The New Republic, The New York Times and The Atlantic. He has covered every presidential election since 2000. His reporting on Obama Obama won the White House Correspondents Association Aldo Beckman Award for presidential news coverage, and Mr. Liz's reporting on the Arab Spring won the National Press Club's Edward M. Hood Award for diplomatic correspondence. And finally, we have Mr. Bruce Wolpe, who is a non-resident senior fellow at the United States Study Centre. He's a regular contributor on US politics across media platforms in Australia. Previously, Mr. Wolpe has worked with Democrats in Congress during President Barack Obama's first term and on the staff of Prime Minister. Mr. Julia Gillard. He has also served as Prime Minister Julia Gillard's Chief of Staff. From 1998 to 2009, Mr. Welpe was Senior Executive at Fairfax Media in Sydney. He's the author of Trump's Australia, an examination of Donald Trump's possible return to the presidency and the issues presented to Australia, as well as the Committee, a study of President Obama's legislative agenda in Congress and lobbying Congress how the system works. So we have a hugely accomplished and knowledgeable panel uh, to kick us off. And uh, the theme for this panel is US politics at a crossroads. So I'd like to start with a question to Ryan. Uh, is US politics at a crossroads? <laughs> uh, I think it's always at a crossroads. <laughs> um, it, it is, and um, in a number of ways. I mean, the most obvious way is that if uh, assuming 
the current trends in the um, Democratic primary, which doesn't really exist, and we can talk about that, and the Republican uh, primary, which in some ways barely exists, um, will probably have a rematch of, of 2020 um, between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, as most of you know. Uh, and the winner of that election, you, you probably hear every election politician say it's the most important election of one's lifetime. I think there's a credible case that 2024 will indeed be the most important election, certainly in my, certainly in my lifetime. Um, and the difference between a second Biden term and a second, uh, though interrupted, uh, Trump term will be very, very consequential for the United States and um, for the world, for, for Australia, all the, all the things that you, you all are discussing uh, today. Um, so yes, I mean, that's a, I think you, got, you all know that, but yes, American politics is at a, a, a crossroads. Um, and we're in this sort of in-between periods when the um, insurrection of, of, of January uh, 6, 2021, um, and the aftermath of those of that event um, is being um, our institutions are being tested um, the, the first test of whether there would be any consequences for what happened in the post-election period of 2020 was impeachment um, and for various reasons um, there was not a two-thirds majority to convict Donald Trump in, in the Senate, but the, the dominant argument of that moment w was probably best expressed by Mitch McConnell, who said that Congress wasn't the place for consequences for Donald Trump, but that there would be consequences. Um, the justice system, the uh, Republican Party primaries. Um, and we're in this sort of post-insurrection period where the American government is being tested. Um, the, the, the locus of accountability is now at our Department of Justice and in some of the uh, local jurisdictions in Manhattan, New York State, and, and Georgia. And the political accountability is uh, being tested in the Republican primary system. The Republican primary system seems like it does not believe that consequences are in order for, for Donald Trump. Um, our justice system uh, has uh, reacted much, much differently, and we're going to see the outcome of that between now and election day. And so I think that's one way to think about this, this period. If you believe that what Trump did was um, dramatic, uh, potentially illegal, and needs to be responded uh, to with serious consequences that the US Congress was not able to deliver, um, then that's what I think you all should be watching for in this period when it comes to Trump. How do Republican voters in the primary system treat him? And how do these uh, various indictments and um, uh, criminal and, and some civil inquiries, uh, uh, what, you know, what's, what was the outcome? And the outcome is wide. It could mean that he's in jail uh, a year from now, 
And it could mean that all of these cases uh, evaporate or uh, break down one way or another, or the consequences just aren't, aren't very severe. But that's sort of the moment we're in um, right this second. Yeah, so very much it seems that we are at a crossroads, and especially the year before the election, I feel like... I should have just said yes to you, right? Yeah, <laughs> short answer, yes. Uh, I think we're going to talk about the election a lot more, especially uh, in this coming year and the rest of the panel, but I do want to focus a little bit more on consequences, because we talk about consequences for Donald Trump and that potentially coming through Congress, but that's also had massive con consequences for Congress itself in this post-insurrection period. And I know, David, you and I have quite often uh, caught, into e caught up with each other in the office and said, have you seen there's another House Speaker drama and there's another candidate coming forward? Um, and that's something that we've seen is that these consequences have carried over into Congress. So I wonder, you know, in the most recent episode of speakership drama, which we know has had consequences not only for the US in terms of um, preventing government shutdown, but also for allies and partners like Australia who are hoping momentum in Congress can deliver things like reforms needed for AUKUS. Um, you know, we looked at the speakership drama. I'm going to give you a very difficult question. Whose fault? was it? <laughs> uh, it? It's a fault of a culture within the Republican Party. So they had a very small majority of five people, now functionally four, but that's exactly the same majority that Democrats had uh, in 2020. And it appears that congressional Democrats saw that tiny majority and basically concluded that they needed to stay together in order to get anything done. Most Republicans would also look at their majority that way, but there was a significant enough group of Republicans who looked at that majority and saw, great, we've got a huge amount of leverage because it only takes five of us to defect. And a tiny majority does not doom you to this kind of dysfunction. Of all people, Marjorie Taylor Greene was lamenting the fact that no matter how much she disagreed with Nancy Pelosi about everything, she had to respect the way that Nancy Pelosi had kept that majority together. That wasn't just Nancy Pelosi's doing, that was the general mindset within the Democratic Party. It's impossible to imagine people like Andrea, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez or Rashida Tlaib uh, or Ilan Omar, no matter what their disagreements with Nancy Pelosi were, it's impossible to imagine them undermining Nancy Pelosi in the same way that Republicans undermined Kevin McCarthy. Uh, so that, I would say, is the problem. It's been attributed to all kinds of things. The increasing uh, kind of currency of media performance and social media performance as opposed to uh, legislation, for example. I also think it's, you know, it's got a lot to do with the ideology of individualism in the Republican Party. We hear uh, Republicans in Congress characterizing Democrats as socialists and collectivists and communists, and then wondering why it was that Democrats all managed to work together uh, when Republicans could not. Uh, I think that you know, part of it does come down to a far more freewheeling, maverick, uh, if you like, individual, individualistic ideology as well, which, um, you know, no matter what the virtues of that are, doesn't always work well when you've got a tiny majority in Congress. Mm. And I think you kind of alluded to there's a bit of a, um, an array of opinions and ideology, ideologies within the Republican Party itself, and I think there's no greater exemplar of that around um, Republican debate season, uh, and especially leading up to the primary elections next year. So, Olivia, you've attended uh, some of the early voting states ahead of this primary season, and could you tell us a little bit about what you observed? Well, you know, as, as Ryan said, 
the primary on the Republican side sort of barely exists. It's this very strange situation where the majority of the candidates uh, live in total fear of the front runner, Donald Trump. Um, they're fearful of him retaliating against them. They're fearful of his voting base. If any of them want to get elected or want to even just perform competitively, uh, they need to appeal to Donald Trump's voting base. So it's this very tricky position that they're in um, where they can't hit him too hard. They can't insult him. They can't insult his supporters who take all of that very personally because they have this kind of parasocial relationship with him. Um, and so it's made for very a very ineffective uh, field of candidates. Uh, you have some exceptions to that, like Chris Christie is running sort of a campaign in which he is pretending that he did not support Donald Trump for the majority of the last several years, pretending that he did not want a position in his cabinet, um, and saying that you know, he's unfit to hold office and everyone should know this. Um, but it's not really working. He doesn't have a lot of support. Um, his time kind of came and went when he might have been a serious presidential candidate a long time ago, a decade ago at this point. Um, and so it's it's a very strange thing where Trump is sort of looming over the field um, and Trump is defining right-wing politics, but he is not taking part in these mm. debates. And I think from the Trump campaign's perspective, um, what I've heard is that, well, why would they bother? Why would they dignify this primary field by standing on stage with these candidates and allowing them within sort of striking distance of him uh, when he can just float above it and force them to kind of wither in his shadow. Mm. And uh, yeah, I think that's the unignorable thing when we're talking about the Republican primaries is that, you know, it's very fun to kind of look at the other candidates and kind of see if any of them have any potential. But Trump is far and away the front runner. I think the latest poll came out yesterday in Iowa and he's got 43% of the vote. And then DeSantis and Haley are at 16% each. Is that... Yeah, I mean, he is just, he's incredibly popular among his supporters. Um, it's a cult of personality around him. Um, and I, I don't think that that movement will really die out uh, until, frankly, he does. I think it'll be a bit like Berlusconi. Ryan and I talked about this a bit uh, this year with some, some of our friends uh, in the Italian media. Um, but he's reshaped the Republican Party in his image. Uh, they've never known how to deal with him. There were some, you know, there was a big primary field in 2015 in the 2016 primaries, a big field on the debate stage, um, and everybody just sort of defined themselves in relation to his charisma, his power. Mm. Um, there's, there hasn't really been someone with this sort of... Um, star wattage probably since Ronald Reagan in the Republican Party. Um, and I think the party is just hapless. They have no idea how to deal with it. Um, and they probably will never figure it out. Hmm. And um, Bruce, I'd love to bring you in now. Um, our polling showed uh, actually a decrease in the amount of Australians who said that a second Trump term would be a very bad thing from 2022. So still 45% of Australians say a Trump term would be bad, but 9% less say that it would be very bad. And that's compared to 22% of Australians who say a second Biden term would be very bad. And this year, you released your book, Trump's Australia, which was looking at Trump's uh, elect, uh, uh, administration and how that impacted Australia and how Australians responded to that. So I wonder 
wonder, what's the reaction to the book been and what uh, concerns do Australians have? Uh, thank you so much. It's great to have you travel from America to read you every day in Politico, to read you monthly in uh, New York magazine. <laughs> really good. Um, the, the polling is uh, very interesting, but I think, you know, we'll recall um, a real drop in anxiety after the January 6th insurrection and Joe Biden was sworn in as president. And what I've picked up is as Trump's um, resuscitation, reemergence, to become the prohibitive front runner, the anxiety level is rising again. And we are in our news cycle. The uh, morning here is the end of the day in the United States, and everyone turns on for news bulletins at 6, 7, and 8 a.m. And often the lead story is the United States and Trump and what's going on. And I think at the heart of it is uh, a difficulty in absorbing and processing what Trump does and how he does it and how it is so jarring with the political culture here in Australia. How can someone with ni indicted 91 times on felonies run for president? How can someone who might be in jail, as Ryan, you know, it, it is a possibility, how could they run for president? I'm tired of using the word unprecedented to describe how unprecedented all these situations are. And, uh, and as long as he is a potent threat, people recall what happened in the first term, where he stands for, you know, protectionism, isolationism, America first, and uh, and, and, th and that those, his positions are jarring to this country, its international trajectory, its belief in international institutions he wants to trash, um, the support here for the war in Ukraine, he's not a supporter of it. Uh, they're afraid of what he would do with alliances in Asia. He was within an hour of signing a piece of paper that would have withdrawn all troops from South Korea. And so it is that uncertainty. Um, and we're in a, also in a situation where it's clear, although President Biden has a very strong legislative record and, uh, and is um, consistent and uh, brings all his experience to bear on problems today, there's uncertainty about where the election is going. Uh, and where you have um, Trump ascendant and questions over how ascendant Biden can be and where the major drivers of sentiment are uncertainty and sometimes fear. Because mm -hmm. we don't know what's going to happen with a world that, you know, you wake up in the morning, it seems to be spinning out of control in various places. And people are worried, do we have a handle on it? And uh, fear is the terrain in which Trump does best. I'm uh, reminded in 1983, a year before the 84 election, Ronald Reagan had the same approval ratings as Joe Biden has today. When we're in a certain moment, we think this moment will continue indefinitely, and then we make calculations about what's going to happen. It can change. Uh, Reagan uh, had mourning in America on the basis of a, a robust economic recovery and absolutely crushed Walter Mondale. If the economy does recover, and that'll be the biggest driver of the election result, I believe, um, unless uh, the world is in such a state that um, management of foreign policy, a Joe Biden forte, notwithstanding Afghanistan, whether that uh, creates a question of leadership on the United States. But if the economy comes back, if interest rates peak, and people have more sense of their own economic security, cost of living pressures, their livelihoods, and so forth, yeah, give the president a second term. But if not, Trump knows how to push buttons, and people recall uh, that they felt that his economy was quite good. Mm. African-American men in particular really felt the economy was good. So all of this is in play. I mean, I think what's so interesting is that the, um, the doubts about Biden are not from uh, the, Dem the Democrats who hold office in the, in the United States. They're not from the leaders of the Democratic Party. They're in the base. And that's an inversion of where 
uh, real challenge comes from, and that explains why there isn't a challenger to him. Yeah, it's a really good point. I, I like how you frame this as, you know, we keep saying that so many things are unprecedented, that we unprecedented is becoming less unprecedented. Um, I think that's really interesting. And something that I had been considering is that maybe the number of Australians who are considering a second Trump term would be very bad is partly because of this continuation of saying it's unprecedented, it's unprecedented and people have checked out. Um, but I wonder what that actually means for voter engagement. And I know that looking at some of our analysis and uh, uh, that both uh, Republicans and Democrats are particularly unenthused about the front-running candidates from their two countries. So, Ryan, if I can ask you, kind of, what's the mood like in Washington? Are people searching around for alternatives, or you know, how do you get voters engaged when things are so unprecedented and there's kind of a, I guess, inclination to withdraw from politics altogether? Well, a couple of thoughts. One, I think your point about the things that are going to happen between now and Election Day cannot be, that's the most important point. When we sit here and talk about an event that is so far out, we um, have no idea what the actual events of the general election are going to be. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we didn't know there was going to be a, a new war in the Middle East that's now dominating uh, American politics, creating all sorts of fissures that didn't exist literally two weeks ago. And if, if you're um, paying attention to what's happening today in Washington, um, you know, there's the, the, the new speaker, speak, uh, Speaker Johnson, has uh, put forward an Israel aid bill. The White House, uh, which hasn't issued too many of these, issued a uh, a veto threat that it will it will actually veto uh, this bill because it's funds aid to Israel by reversing um, uh, aspects of the IRA, uh, this big uh, increase for the uh, IRS. Um, and, and so that's, you know, that's something that we didn't know about two weeks ago and is now completely driving American politics. So have to keep that, that in mind. Uh, the other thing is, you alluded to this, which I think is really important, is voters, I think one of the most core findings of political science, uh, at least in America, is that voters are myopic. Um, and what we think is the most important issue in politics as, as we sit here uh, in, in, uh, in, in 2023 um, may be something that nobody cares about uh, ne you know, ne next, uh, next, next November. Um, and then I think on the, on the doubts about Biden and the doubts about Trump, there is, um, you know, there, right now, there is a sense among even Democrats that they want an alternative and they're not getting an alternative. And the big split between the two parties is, that the elites of the Democratic Party have all rallied around Joe Biden, you know, to a person. Uh, it's really remarkable the sort of how he has solidified party support, um, if you define that as, you know, elected officials up and down, down the ballot across America. But the voters, the Democratic voters, constantly express doubts about him in, in polls to the point where his approval rating among Democrats is 75%. They might say, oh, that sounds like a lot. But in American politics, the two parties being very polarized, you are generally getting, uh, even, even if you have relatively low approval rating, ratings overall, you're, you should be getting um, high 80s at least, but usually over 90% general approval rating from your own party. 
on the on the Republican side, the flip Republican side, the the reverse is happening. Um, a lot of Republican. Um, um, a, 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 a Republican voters have strong, strong backing for Donald Trump. As the Iowa poll that, that you mentioned suggests, you know, there's, uh, you know, other, other candidates can, can get sometimes into the double digits. Yes, more than half of the electorate is choosing other, other candidates uh, uh, th than Trump. But even if you look at the internals of that Iowa poll you, you, you mentioned, the DeSantis support, the number two choice for all the DeSantis people is Donald Trump. <laughs> so you take DeSantis out of the race, and it's not like all of that support, that 16% goes to Haley. Um, at least half of it, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, goes to Trump, which is the problem of the DeSantis campaign. He's running an understudy campaign, and an understudy campaign never becomes the lead actor unless something happens to the, to the lead actor, which you know isn't a bad bet. I think that is partly DeSantis's bet. Like he's there in case uh, you know something Trump drops out for some reason. Um, but at the elite level in the Republican Party. It's the same way it's been since 2015, with all sorts of Republican elected officials privately expressing, uh, you know, anywhere from disgust to uh, irritation with Donald Trump. Wish, wish they had other choices. Um, a lot of this doesn't go on publicly, but you know, some some of it does. Um, and so those are the, you know, so. Those are the, the two parties are sort of mirror images of, of, of each other. And I guess one question is, which position would you rather be in going into the, the, the general election, assuming that both of these candidates are going to survive the, the primary challenges that exist? And as you all know, um, this uh, representative, this member of the House from Minnesota has recently jumped into the race to challenge Joe Biden. I think most people in American politics think this is going to be uh, not a, a significant uh, threat to Biden, but you know, uh, you, you never know. Sometimes these things can take on a life of their own. And um, the last two incumbent incumbent presidents to lose and not uh, uh, win, a, win a second term were uh, presidents who had serious challenges uh, in their in their primaries. Uh, Jimmy Carter was challenged uh, by by Ted Kennedy, and George H. W. Bush was challenged by Pat Buchanan. They survived those challenge, but challenges, but they were weakened for the general election. So I don't think most people don't see Dean Phillips as that kind of person. But I will say, in 1992, a lot of people didn't see Pat Buchanan as that kind of person. Uh, he would, but you know, very different profile. But it's it's something it's it's something uh, to to watch. Um, so. Those are my thoughts about that. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, well, actually, David, I'd love to get your take. Do you think that Americans are as engaged this year as they were before when, as Ryan says, so much of this seems so inevitable and set in stone? Yes, I think they are, because deeply unpopular candidates don't seem to reduce democratic engagement. They seem to increase it. If you have a look at the 2016 election, which was then a record in terms of how unpopular both candidates were, uh, that had very high turnout by American standards. 2020, even less popular candidates, even higher turnout. 
2020 had 66% of the population voting. That was the highest turnout in more than 100 years. Not only that, we've got high turnout in midterm elections in 2018 and 2022, about 10% to 15% higher than is normal in midterm elections. The fact that you have these fantastically unpopular candidates doesn't make people not want to vote. It makes people want to vote against them. And that seems to be the driving dynamic in American politics at the moment. It doesn't matter how unpopular Joe Biden is with Democrats, they will vote against Trump. They'll vote to stop Trump. It doesn't matter that a lot of Republicans have misgivings about Trump. They still see him as what is standing between uh, them and Democratic Party domination of the country, um, which they see as, you know, in apocalyptic terms. So, um, yeah, the, the extreme kind of negativity, the uh, record low approval ratings of the two major candidates, they don't actually uh, decrease democratic engagement, but they do turn it into something that is more turbocharged and apocalyptic and um, watching it from afar makes me very glad that uh, I decided to live here rather than there. <laughs> Can I just yeah. one yeah. point to that? Because it's such an important point. I mean, you're talking about negative partisanship that opposition to the other side drives voters more than uh, supports. Although Trump benefits from both dynamics. He has, you know, Biden is mostly driven, his voters are mostly driven by negative partisanship. Trump has a little bit of both. You, you, you pointed out this, the low approval rating of both by many Americans. And I think this is something that you may, you, a lot of folks in this room may not have thought of, but I think is an incredibly important dynamic to watch as you go into, into uh, the general election next year. And the deciding factor in both 2016 and 2020 were voters who hated both candidates. In 2016, these voters had a place to go, third-party candidates. In 2020, they didn't. They were stuck with Biden uh, on the left. And this is why there is so much energy right now in the Democratic Party especially, but, but some, some on the right, in making sure that third-party candidates are not a factor, especially in some of these key states. But that, that Hillary Clinton lost because of voters who hated her and hated Trump. Those voters broke uh, for Trump or they were parked on some non-viable third-party third candidate. So that is a, a key, key thing in a close election. If, if I may, um, one thing that I'm very interested in going forward is most of the media attention on Donald Trump right now, and I think that this will certainly change if he is the nominee, but most of the media attention on him, it's not really on him as a candidate. It's not on his campaign. When you go to his rallies, um, the press pen, I'm sure you've seen on television when at the Trump rally, the old school ones from 2016, he would say, uh, turn around, and that's the fake news media. Uh, now when he says that, it's very strange because it's mostly right-wing supporters of his who are in that media pen, so he's sort of instructing the crowd to yell at his fans, people from you know, Newsmax and these sort of uh, off-brand Fox News right-wing media outlets. Um, but there's not really, 
can't, there's not really coverage in the mainstream press that takes him super seriously as a candidate. It's mostly coverage of his criminal trials, of the various indictments against him, um, of the possibility that he might be in prison. If you're watching MSNBC, you hear about that a lot. Um, and I'm, I do wonder if, you know, in 2020, I think Biden won in part because people were living with the reality of Trump every day. You wake up and there's a tweet or there's something insane that he is doing that is driving the discourse and throwing everyone's plans into chaos. Um, and you could not escape Trump's presence um, as a sort of negative effect on your life. As a, if you're a normal citizen and you want to forget about the president for a few hours, you couldn't really do that uh, during the Trump era. And I think that was a big part of Joe Biden. Uh, pitch to voters was sort of like, you could kind of forget about me for a few days and the world would still keep spinning. Um, and I, I wonder if Trump seems like less of a threat, less of a kind of looming, terrifying thing, um, the further he is removed from that and the more that he is treated, at least in the mainstream press, um, as this sort of strange event uh, unfolding and you know collapsing before our eyes. I think that will possibly change when he's the nominee. There will be more mainstream coverage of his events, of his statements. Um, he'll be taken more seriously. But I do wonder if something like that, um, where you're not confronted every day with the possibility that he will be back in office, where that seems so outrageous given the state of his, um, the investigations against him, if that could kind of depress turnout um, among Democratic voters. Mm. Bruce, did you yes, want to jump in? I think, I think that's right. Uh, I also, uh, just to add to it a little bit, I think 2020 was a, a clinical uh, decision on Biden, and Trump has always been an emotional decision. And uh, the clinical decision on Biden was um, in 2020, Democrats landed. I, I, I toyed with voting for Mike Bloomberg in the Colorado primary because I wanted a winner to beat him. I ultimately landed on that Biden was the one, and that's where Democrats were, and he was the one. But it was, it was a transactional decision. Trump doesn't have rusted on supporters. He has welded on supporters. And he is extraordinarily um, uh, canning, uh, cunning in what he uh, does and how he does it. And so what David, you're talking about on the fear factor, yeah, he plays that to the max. The, the state is after me to drive me off the ballot. Uh, it's the greatest crime in American political history. And then to personalize and say, when they come after me, they're coming after you. And so I am protecting you. And that's the conundrum for Republican candidates because they can't attack Trump directly frontally. Nikki Haley's beginning to do that. I don't think she'll survive the, the process. But if they attack Trump frontally, they're attacking Trump's voters. So how can Trump's voters vote for them? And so they are stuck. And that's why he is the prohibitive favorite to be the nominee. So next year, the emotional content of Trump stays with that 40 to 45%. The question is, will the clinical um, uh, uh, judgment stay with Biden. And that's where age is such a factor because we don't have compulsory voting in the United States, unfortunately. Um, I think certain real key constituencies, particularly younger voters, could stay home. And so does that put Biden in real jeopardy of Trump's 45% holding the electorate? And that's, uh, I think, the strongest tectonic concern that I can see. I think um, one of Biden's key messages when he was running for election in 2020 was not only, you know, vote for me rather than voting, or, you know, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative, as we often hear. And um, he also mobilizes fear in the sense of, you know, vote for me because we don't want MAGA Republicans in control. But the other reason that he provided was, you know, I'll bring a return to normalcy. 
Um, Olivia, do you think he's been successful in returning Washington to normal? <laughs> no, I, I might not be the best. Ryan might be a better person to answer this because I never experienced a normal Washington. <laughs> I came to Washington to cover Donald Trump, basically. Um, and so my understanding of the place is uh, probably not correct. Um, I don't think it did it operate like that in the Bush era, in the Obama it was, era. It was different before 2015. <laughs> um, did he bring normalcy? Yeah, I mean, Trump never, he's never gone away, right? And so in, the, in 2021, the, during the transition, the Biden plan was to ignore Trump, was to not um, come into the White House with a series of proposals that were defined by Trump, even though they were obviously going to roll back a lot of Trump policies. They didn't want the, the ghost of Trump hanging around. Then, of course, January 6th happened, and they had to deal with the, with the aftermath of, of Trump. And remember, this debate eventually um, came to dominate the highest levels of the Department of Justice. And if you remember, all through 2021, um, after impeachment failed, there was a fraught debate in, in public about whether the Attorney General, Merrick Garland, was going to do anything about the insurrection, whether did Trump break any laws? There were a lot of you know, serious legal questions uh, and constitutional questions about it. Um, and there was a whole stream of criticism, mostly from the left, that the Biden administration, the Biden Justice Department, just didn't care about this issue. Um, and you sort of have to separate the White House, which in some ways didn't want to be burdened with cleaning up all of Trump's messes. Um, on the other hand, started to, I think, realize politically as they approached the midterms that Trump, Trumpism, what they call MAGA now, wasn't going away. And it was in some ways the glue that held together the 2020 Democratic coalition, right, where the swing where, where big chunk of the swim vote, swing voters were anti-Trump Republicans um, who, who voted for Biden. And then I think similarly at the Justice Department, they realized whether it was through pressure or just taking a cold hard look at the facts that, yeah, they did as, as difficult as this was going to be, as much as it could tear up the country, frankly, um, they needed to proceed with um, these investigations and ultimately indictments. So in this weird way, the Trump, the Biden administration, which wanted to usher in the post-Trump era, um, got hit in the face with reality that there was no post-Trump era. He's not gone. Um, so they, and, they, and they had to both clean up the mess, but also continue to run against it. And I'll tell you, at the end of the, I remember after the midterms were, were over, um, there were a lot of Democrats, Howard Dean being one, Terry McAuliffe, names you may not know, both former uh, heads of the Democratic Party, who were saying things like, yes, we hope Trump is the nominee in 2024 because we know how to beat him. Now, they may regret saying that, but I mean, that's what they're going to get. People said that in 2016 as well, and I don't think that worked out particularly well. But on a, on a much less substantive note, I was surprised to find, I figured after the insurrection, 
Trump's out of office socially in Washington. Um, a lot of people associated with him, people who worked for him, would perhaps either not want to show their faces um, or would not be welcome into like polite Washington society. It's not that polite. Um, and I, that was incredibly naive, as it turns out. Um, I find, you know, when you go out to, to typical Washington events, um, those people are sort of welcomed like nothing happened. Um, and I, I think maybe that is back to normal in some way. Maybe that's how Washington's always been. Um, but it's been very, very strange, and it's sort of this disorienting effect. Yeah, I feel like we're just getting stuck in, and I'm seeing a timer buzzing me out saying stop. So uh, unfortunately, I think that's all we have time for. But please join me in thanking our panelists for coming today. Thank you.